I want to walk through the book of Joel today. Um, I debated whether I should just read it and, and make comments. I'm not going to do that. But uh, as I've mentioned before, when I first started reading through some of these minor prophets that are near the old, end of the Old Testament, they used to just wear me out. And, uh, you know, sometimes you might read them 25, 30 times, and then suddenly one of them will unlock itself to you, and you're going, oh, that's amazing. But then the others are still kind of in that camp. What I like to do with this book is maybe bring a few insights this morning and hopefully help you begin to unlock some of it. Um, there's something we have to understand regarding prophecy. And, and again, some of this is review, but when the Old Testament writers were writing prophetically, they were looking ahead, and they might see something that was 50 years in advance. They might see something that was 500 years in advance. They might see something that goes to the very end of time, but it was all future to them. And so when they're writing there isn't this need to define this happened and then this happened and this happened. It was all future. And so when they're writing it, sometimes there's a blending of, of events that some are nearer and then some are a little further, but they're not saying, oh, well, there was a gap of 500 years here. They didn't necessarily even see that. They just saw it coming. So when we read it, now there are times when we look back and say, well, that was 500 years before Christ, we're looking backward. We're not looking forward at the event. Then we're looking and going, that was at the time of Christ, or shortly after. But it, you know, so again, we're seeing a span of history. And then in other portions of the book, we're looking and saying, that hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen. So that gets a little confusing, right? Where you're trying, was this already happened? Is this going to happen? You know, what, what's going on here? So just keep that in mind when we walk through this. Uh, in this particular book, there are a couple things that, that you need to note. Um, the, the tribe of Israel had been split in, during um, Rehoboam's time, uh, third king, fourth king. And so that there were two kingdoms. They were related, but uh, the northern kingdom was more profane and fell away quicker. Judah, surrounded by Jerusalem, was the, was the tribe that, or the group that tended to hold on to that longer, but even they had their time and they're hauled off into captivity by Babylon. So that said, this writer of Joel sees the imminent demise of Judah, the, one, the group that had been more righteous, but he says there's a group coming that's going to devastate this place. And the assumption is he's looking at what Babylon is going to do to this country. So he sees that in the near future, but he also looks ahead, and at some point he's going to say, God is going to punish you for the way you've lived even in this season, and that disaster is upon us. He says it's, it's close. But he's also looking ahead saying, knowing God and his mercy and his desire to live with us, and there's going to be a restoration. And then he begins prophesying and speaking of what's proclaimed in Acts 2, that day of Pentecost that you mentioned. 
And there's a significant passage out of this that Peter quotes on his Day of Pentecost sermon. So we see a fulfillment of that portion of it on the Day of Pentecost after Christ. So, you know, so the imminent demise of Judah, maybe 50 years off at most, 500 years later, the, the, the um, Pentecost experience. But then he also talks about the end of time and God's judgment on the nations being drawn into the, to Israel and, and, a, and a final battle, which is declared on in, in numerous places. Now you can kind of go, well, why do we even have to look at this? Except that when we start to understand these principles of how God works with people, we're included in that. And so we begin to see some of the things that take place where when it says in, that he disciplines those he loves, we can look back in history and say, yeah, and sometimes it is incredible what takes place in the, the, the complications of life and the destruction of people groups even in that. But knowing too that his mercy is going to open a window at some place so that there can be a restoration. And even as we look at the end of time, there's this declaration made that, you know, for those that are, are walking in offense toward God and have kind of gone their own route, there's a judgment day that's going to be wretched. But the other side of this is there's going to be a time of blessing for those that have pursued God. Another factor in this, <laughs> I know I'm throwing a batch of things out, but let's, let's, let's go after this for just a bit. There, in this particular book, there's called a, a Valley of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat's name means God judges, or the Lord brings judgment. And so when we're looking at names and, and former kings' names, there's a tendency to just keep it simple, okay? I don't want to have to look in and try to figure out, is he talking about this valley where God's decisions are going to be wrought, or is he talking about a specific location? Well, it could be both. We don't know. But very minimally, it's a place where God is going to bring judgment upon people. So the Valley of Jehoshaphat, that's something that we need to, to remember. Also in this book, you're going to read a phrase called Day of the Lord. In the initial declaration of it, it's the judgment coming to Judah. And there's this declaration, the Day of the Lord is coming. The day of his judgment upon Judah but later in the book, you're going to read the day of the Lord, and it's going to refer to the end of time. So it's, it's not just as, well, can't we have just one or the other? You get both. It's a bonus. But if you're willing to, to work with that in some ways, not get so caught up in the detail, but look at the surrounding, you begin to understand that there's a devastation predicted. It's the same way when... when in the first portion, you read of a plague of locusts. Now, in their history, in the plagues that were upon Egypt, there was a locust, and they came in and devastated everything. And in that region of the world, it wasn't all that uncommon for those kind of things to happen. But when you're reading this, it may be referring to the Babylonians coming in and just stripping everything bare, similar to a plague of locusts. Do I know the difference in what it is? 
No. <laughs> and I've quit trying to figure it out. Um, I just know that in the prophecy that was given, Joel's making a declaration saying, devastation is coming to this country, but there's also going to be restoration. So just keep that in mind, if you would. Okay. Um, so in the very first portion of this, he says there are locusts coming, and he says there's cutting locusts, swarming locusts, hopping locusts, destroying locusts. In other words, they come and eat everything that's available to be eaten. So that's a devastating picture. And in that also you say, for a nation, a little bit later, a nation's come up against the land powerful beyond number. Teeth are like lion's teeth. It has the fangs of a lioness. Is laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It's stripped off their bark, thrown it down, and their branches are made white. In other words, he says, everything gets laid bare in this. And he says, this is the kind of grief that you ought to be weeping over. He says, it's like a fiancé that loses her, her uh, betrothed. You know, he says, it's like this gal that's, that's uh, planning on being married and suddenly her fiancé dies. It's a brutal picture. He says, but that's the kind of picture of, of what's coming to, to Israel or to Judah. He says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. He says, call a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord and cry out to the Lord. Um, here's another complication in this book. There was a king in Judah's history called Jehoshaphat that was a good king. And he was a king that brought reforms to the land. Now, I think the writer Joel is, is writing this at a time when they're remembering some of this going on because there, was, there were times when this prophet or this king Jehoshaphat, he called the people to the Lord, he, he brought them... He reached out to the Ephraimites and said, you need to serve the Lord again. He sent judges out throughout the land and told them, you need to judge justly. Judge as if God is giving you words to say. He also told them, he says, you need to, to turn your hearts to the Lord. This is what the king was saying. And they, uh, they did that. And, and there was a response. And he would call the people to fast. Particularly, there's one time it says, now, they had an army listed as over a million people, but there was a horde coming of them against them. And he comes to this point, he says, we don't know what to do. We're incapable of conquering this army. And he calls a fast among all the people. He, he gets the priests together. He gets the elders together. He gets the young and old. He says, gather together. Call everyone together. We're having a fast. And they fast and pray to the Lord and say, God, are you really going to allow us to get wiped out? What's that going to say about you? Interesting perspective about calling and asking God something. It's like, um, you know, I'm not calling to you out of my own goodness or anything else. I'm just saying, God, this is going to reflect bad on you. You might try that. I don't, can't hurt, right? You know, it's bad PR. What's this going to say about you, Lord? So they, they call upon the Lord, and a word comes out and says, you're going to be delivered. In fact, it's, it's amazing enough 
They bow down and worship, and the next day they send out the singers in front of all the armies. That's the way to go to battle, right? But the incredible part was there were three different armies coming against them. They turn against each other, and they destroy each other. So they don't even get to the battle. And all that happens then is that Jehoshaphat and his people spend four days picking up the plunder and loot. And they call it the Valley of Blessing because of, of the goodness of God out of that. So this is, this is part of the understanding that people would have when they're hearing this prophecy. So when we talk about sound a trumpet, call a sacred assembly, call a fast, they're aware that God has answered them in times past through this. Okay. Back to Joel. Have I thoroughly confused you? I can keep trying. No. <laughs> Weep and wail. Alas, the day, the day of the Lord is near, and this destruction from the Almighty comes. So again, in this first chapter, Joel is saying, Imminent destruction is coming to our city and to our people because of the way we've lived. And he's predicting the Babylonian uh, conquering of Israel. He goes on to say, it's, and he paints a picture of famine. He says, the, the seed shrivels, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down, cattle are perplexed, no pasture with them, flocks and sheep suffer. You know, so he's painting a picture of famine. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water books are dried up, fires devoured the pastures in the wilderness. When Jehoshaphat was making his prayer for salvation, he says, whether it's famine or pestilence or an invading army, we call upon you. And so Joel, when he's painting this picture, he's using pictures of pestilence and famine and armies and saying, there's disaster coming. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Again, this double meaning, the day of the Lord. Joel 2.1. 2.3, a fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like a, the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. So he's saying of this army coming in, the land, it looks like Eden. When they're done, he says, it's just a desert. Destroyed. Like warriors, and, and he talks of them, you know, just leaping over mountains and just marching on in great power. He says they charge like soldiers. They scale the wall. They march on each other. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle each other. Each marches in his own path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. In some ways, you know, if you hearken back to that illustration of the locusts, he says this army coming on is just like the locusts. They just overwhelm. There's nothing that stops them. They just keep marching, marching, marching. And he says even the environment gets affected by this. The earthquakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? 
So he's saying the Lord is using a pagan army to come in and destroy this, what's, what we've known. Yet even now, you know, all of this, who can endure it? 12 and 13, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So here's the turning point in the book. He's painted this picture of the immediate, but he says, God, by nature, does not stay in that mode. He says, turn your hearts toward him. Don't make it just an outward observance of your garments. But he says, let your hearts truly be changed and turned toward him. And he says, know that his mercy is available. So he sees the immediate, but he's also looking past it and saying, that can't last. It's not the way God does things. Not for his people. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred a solemn assembly. He says, let the priests and ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people. This is very similar to a picture of what Jehoshaphat did with his people. And then here's the turning. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered his people and said, behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied I'll no more make you a reproach among the nations. So he says there's a turning point even in this disaster where God responds. He says, I'll remove the northerner far from you, this pagan army from the north, and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad, rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Uh, I need to make one more comment about the locusts before I go on. This putrid smell. Um, this comes out of a, a Clark's commentary uh, written. Uh, they had different ones like St. Augustine. So I just listen to this, if you would. There was such an immense crowd of locusts in Africa that having eaten up every green thing, a wind arose and carried them into the sea where they perished. You know, just like he's saying he's going to throw this army into the desert and into the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, the, two, the East and West Seas. But being cast upon the shore, they putrefied and bred such a pestilence that 80,000 men died of it in the kingdom of Massinissa. And goes on to say, 30,000 in the garrison of Utica, in which only 10 remained alive. He says, we have many testimonies of a similar kind. So the writer Joel is aware of these kind of things going on. And he's saying, that's going to happen to this army that has advanced against you. They aren't going to be allowed to just stand. So again, some of the history helps us put together piece of this, of this, right? He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, 
the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. And you shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel, that I'm the Lord your God, and there's none else. My people should never again be put to shame. When we read principles like this, we have the right of looking at immediate application and saying, well, God carried that out. But we also look at the nature and character of God and we say, his nature and character are, are consistent and constant. And so that's the way he deals with my heart also. So there are times when you look and say, it looks like these years have just been stripped away and nothing left. How can any good come out of that? And what Joel is declaring is he's saying, there's a restoration that, take, that restores things so that those years don't even get remembered. I think many of us, anyway, can point to experiences where in the midst of it, we're going, I don't know how any good can ever come out of this. This is disastrous. I can't imagine God making anything better from this. And yet, in following years, you're going, you know, those are bad days, but like the memory of them is just gone. It's evaporated because the good that I've landed in is well worth it. And, it, you know, it's like the pain and the struggle of it just kind of gets set aside because of what's taking place in the present. And there's that hope in us when we encounter things, you know, similar to a devastating season that looks beyond like a Joel and says, okay, imminent disaster, but God in his mercy and the slow to anger God, I know that there's a brighter day in store. Just know. So when we read through these books, there's this, this hope that wells up in us and says, yeah, I can trust him. I can rely on him. He's proven himself faithful before. I can see history and I can see what he did already. And I also have confidence then of what he's going to do. In Acts 2, 28 and 29, it goes into the prophecy of the Spirit being given to all people. And this is a prophecy that Kurt referred to out of Acts 2. Because Peter when he's experiencing the Holy Spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost, he looks back to the book of Joel and says, hey, this is it. This is what God promised us. And so he's able to look and say, 500 years ago. <laughs> Do any of us know what happened 500 years ago? Well, there's a few historians in here, but most of us aren't. But they had this scripture and they're going, it's happening right now. And they recognize Joel's word coming true. I'll pour out, come to pass after, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female, female servant in those days, I'll pour out my spirit. The declaration is made, the spirit is going to be given to Everyone. That's, that's what's promised. You know, it's a declaration saying it's not just for a few prophets, it's not just for, it's going to be poured out on everyone. 
So, and he goes on and says, I'll show wonders in the heavens, earth, blood and fires, columns of smoke, before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. And even in that, there's, there's an, a forward-looking, and we're going, can't you just make it one or the other? No, it's the way it's written. Deal with it. You know? But even so, when we're looking at that, you know, and for us, we're looking and saying, the gifts of the Spirit are available today for all of us. That's a continuing thing. Not everyone believes that way. I, uh, you know, I don't spend a lot of energy trying to convince people of that anymore. It's just like, I, I'm not going to be convinced the other way because my experience is you're probably not going to be convinced. But, you know, when I look at the scripture, what do we agree on? You know, if I ask a person that, that doesn't believe in, in gifts of the Spirit for today, and I ask my pastor friends, which I have numerous in this camp, and I go, how did you get into ministry? Oh, God called me. Really? How did he talk to you? By his spirit? You know, there's this tension. And I'm going, the fruit of the Spirit, is that for today? Oh, obviously. That's the important thing. Well, how does the fruit of the Spirit get developed in your life? Is that through the Spirit of God? So again, we're, we're talking, well, yes, these involve something, we just don't agree at, at the extent of it. At least that's the argument as I see it. But, uh, you know, that said, um, we don't, we're not going to try to force you into experience. We're not going to deny our, our position in Scripture. But I would encourage you, say, God, I want everything you have for me today. And if you want to invest in me, I'm open. That's, that's a fair prayer, right? And then let him decide what he's going to do. Um, yeah, I need to go on. Or I'm not going to get done. It says, it shall, in 2.32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So... Peter took that into the message, and several thousand people got saved that day. It was wonderful. Um, I need to make one footnote. I said I was going on, but I almost made it. Um, I think the scripture is complete. And so, again, what we are talking about in the way of gifts is not the same as the writing of scripture. And that's where the rub comes in a lot of cases. But let's, okay, now I really am going on. Uh, Valley of Judgment, Joel 3, chapter 2. I will gather the nations and bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Remember, we said Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges or the Lord's judgment. So, nations of the earth being brought into a place of judgment together. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people, my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. So Joel's saying what's coming is a dispersion of the people all through the nations. And historically, we saw that. 
and even a coming back of the nation of Israel now from all over the world. And who'd have thunk that you know, a nation that hadn't been in existence for 2,000 years could suddenly exist again? You know, how could they keep that identity as a people? It's, it's astounding, but they did. And so this, this prophecy is being made. You know, they've been scattered, but now I'm going to pay back the nations that did the scattering. And he says, you know, you sold my children, now I'm going to sell yours. That's the declaration. He says, let the nations stir themselves up. You know, tell them, you know, put a sickle for the harvest is ripe, go tread on the wine press, it's full, the vats overflow, their evil is great. And he says, you know, beat the swords into plowshares, or the plowshares into swords. In other words, even people that aren't normally violent, he says, get ready for violence. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. This is a verse that most of my life I've read improperly. Um, I read it as people need to make a decision. Yeah, it's nice to preach it that way. Multitudes, multitudes, what are you going to decide? I read it now as multitudes are gathered and the Lord's judgment is taking place. Valley of Jehoshaphat. And he's sorting out how it's going to be. It makes more sense to me that way anyway. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decisions. The valley of his judgment. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw and they're shining. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake. The Lord is a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the people of Israel. He says, all the nations be drawn in. God protects his own. Um, It says the Lord roars from Zion. Now, I know we've all loved Narnia and, and, you know, Jesus represented as a lion and and the roar, you know. To my way of thinking, that's kind of quaint. If... If God spoke and the world came into being, what's his roar going to do? You know, if he speaks and everything's created, um, sorry, but the lion doesn't get it. It's going to be much more intense. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, And Jerusalem shall be holy. Strangers shall never again pass through it. We've been looking at this theme through the last months. That in creation, God wanted to live with his creation. And through Jesus Christ, you know, when it said subdue and rule the earth, the fulfillment of that original command is fulfilled through him. And when we read the book of Revelation, the dwelling of God is with man, and creation responds to that as well. This is another one of those books that refers to that kind of idea. It says, God is going to dwell with his people. So again, numerous times through the scripture, you see this declaration made that there is coming a time when we are going to live with God. It's an incredible thought. It's it's almost too joyous to to believe. Because that the God who would make all things would decide to dwell with this creation, 
it's kind of a, it is astounding. But that's what the scriptures declare over and over and over again. And he says, in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the water. And the fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, water from the valley of Acacias. Boy, he's just saying there is abundance. There, you know, is it a literal milk and... I'm just, what I read in this is that there is plenty and abundance and joy in that setting. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. And I'll avenge their blood. I'm not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Again, he says, Judah's going to be taken care of. uh, Jerusalem will always be the city of God. He says, I'm going to live there with them. So so when we, we read through this, I'd encourage you to go home and just hit it again and just see if it's clicking this time through. Pick up a few nuggets along the way. But at minimum, recognize that Joel was predicting a horrific invasion by an army that would wipe them out. And that the devastation would be on a scale that they had never seen. But with that was also the knowledge that their loving God would somehow find a way of restoring them as a people. That he would not just leave them. But this punishment was coming, but there was a recognition that there was another day and a changing and a restoration. And he says, basically, you're going to forget the past because the future is going to be so bright. And then we also recognize that he prophesied ahead the day of Pentecost and saw what was going to happen to the new church. And so he's looking and he's saying, God's Spirit's going to be poured out in a way that we've never seen before. And it's going to be available to everyone. And he takes you know, all their pictures from their history and kind of weaves them together. But it's a, that complexity kind of gives us a wonder and an awe at it all. And finally, there's a recognition that God is going to have a battle of the ages, so to speak. When there is a judgment day, and there's going to be an acknowledgement that those that have been adversarial toward him will be destroyed. But those that have, have called to him and have responded to his voice, there is going to be, it's a time of blessing, a time of great wonder at seeing his provision again. Lord, help us to walk in faith and to acknowledge that you do all things well. On days or seasons or years when we are walking through your discipline, help us not to to grow faint-hearted or walk in unbelief and say, well, where is God in this? But also help us to recognize that in your mercy, you restore in ways that we didn't dream possible. And there is a future ahead when you live with humanity in a wondrous, wondrous new heaven and new earth. Praise the Lord. Some years ago, a close friend of mine um, walked through what I would describe as a season of discipline where he had been tolerating some things in his life and participating in some things that he shouldn't have. And uh, God dealt with him in a powerful way where his life kind of unraveled and the 
that season, and I was so close to the situation, I'm looking at it going, oh my goodness, this is, this is brutal. I never would have thought that all this would take place. And it forced me to look at my own life and say, how am I living and what am I doing that whether I acknowledge it or not, God's hand of discipline is upon me and, and correcting me and I need to wake up so that it can stop or that we can move on. And it, it was a sobering moment to just, you know, it, I was grateful enough to be able to see it in someone else than to be able to take it to myself and say, I need to pay attention here. Because often we'll look and say, I don't know why these things are happening. And it's just a state of denial because we're refusing to look at the hand of God and what he wants to do and, and how he's changing us. But in that transformation, we have opportunity for our lives to be whole in him if we'll respond to it. So I just encourage you, walking through a book like this, to God, do you have something you want to speak to me about? Or you may have already been walking through a season where you're just going, I don't know what's going to take place. It's like the grasshoppers have come in and eaten everything. And, and there's that need for hope that says he's a God who restores and brings back abundance in ways that we didn't dream possible. I will trust him. Whatever, we hope that our encounters are such that there's an anticipation and excitement of seeing God, being united with him, and the privilege of living with him forever. May your blessing rest on these, your people, and they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they discover with joy what it is to look with anticipation of your return. Ask as each one goes into the community that you'll give them words of life to speak over others. I ask that you'll help them to carry out the workings of your kingdom. Gift them with the supernatural. Be lifted up and exalted, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Remains is open-ended worship.